educational organization with the one paid pastor or a paid pastor and an assistant and then deacons and then a whole bunch of committees to what hopefully we'll see today is from scripture from God's design to have a church that is led by a plurality of pastor elders so specifically that's that's the reason that I started thinking about this message actually several months ago. I love to play euchre. Now, I know that might be offensive to some people, a Christian playing cards, but I never play for money. I just like to play euchre. I can remember one time, the whole game, I had one kind of decent hand. We ended up taking the hand. I had four aces and like the queen of the trump card, and we ended up taking the hand. I remember another game where one hand I had, I don't know, a king or a jack, no, not a king, a king or an ace of trump, and then a ten or a queen. Um, We played the hand out the last hand, somebody let off, I had one trump card left, the nine of trump. And I took the hand, or the trick, and, and we won the hand. If you don't know, the nine of trump is the lowest card of trump. But trump always beats anything else. So somebody could play an ace of spades, and I had the nine of hearts, which was trump. My, my card would beat it. My point is... And this is is really the point I want to drive at today. The church flourishes when God's design trumps man's design. And specifically, in structural organization of the church. In America, we hold individuality in high esteem. I think we can all acknowledge that. Individual rights, the right to vote, You know, we get upset when people are treated unfairly. And the Bible affirms that, that we are individuals. I thought about how God made man in his own image. That gives each one of us significance and value. I thought about believers being a royal priesthood. Which it states in First Peter two nine, and having access to God individually, as it states in Hebrews ten nineteen through twenty six. Let us come boldly, therefore, to the throne of grace, to help find help in time of need. Each believer has access to the throne of God. They don't have to go through a priest. But I think most pointedly, this individuality is confirmed. In 1 Corinthians 12. And this, this passage just came to me yesterday as I was looking over the message. Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 12 is talking about spiritual gifts. You know, if, if the hand says, well, I'm not the head or I'm not the, the hearing, um, does that make him less a part of the body? No. In verse... 
I think it's verse 27. Um, Paul says, as he's finishing up this discourse on the, on the body of Christ, he says, you are the body and members individually. Well, that's from the New King James Version. I think the NIV says something different, but it comes out, you are members individually. So the Bible affirms our individuality. And that's something we as Americans can accept. But I think there's another doctrine that is in the Bible that we have a hard time accepting. And that's in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. That's on page 1879 in the Pew Bible. I can get to the right book. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. That's a doctrine of the Bible, that there is an authority structure in the church. We as Americans resist that. We resist submission to authority. Now, do you see the tension we are individuals, the Bible affirms that, but we are called to submit to church leadership. There's a tension there, isn't there? I don't know about you, but I see a lot of tension points in the Christian faith. One God who is three persons. There's tension. Salvation is completely from God, by grace, through faith. And not even the faith is ours. But man has a, a free will. There's a tension there. I believe that if you cannot accept that there's tension in the Christian faith, and you try to explain everything with our human understanding, that you're going to go off into error. I accept these tensions. I don't understand completely one God but three persons who are equally coexistent. But God's word says it's true. So I accept it. Now the way I want to approach this is to look at the passage in Acts chapter 6 that was read, the choosing of the first deacons, And I, I hope that as we get to the close of the message this morning, you will see how the truth of the gospel helps us to live with this tension between individuality and submission. Now, if you're looking in your bulletin, I think 
I think there should be three points in there. Hang on to that. This is a little different. I'm not going to go point by point, but we're going to look at two narratives of church leadership in action and ask some questions, the same questions for each, and then we'll come to the points, uh, the main points of the, of the passage. So in chapter 6 of Acts, and that's on page 1700, I forgot to say that, there was an issue raised. Who brought up the issue? For simplicity, let's say it was part of the congregation. Part of the congregation came to the leadership and said, hey, there's a problem. This isn't right. And the issue was that some of the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Pretty straightforward answers. Part of the congregation brought the issue. The issue was people weren't being taken care of. Now in verses 2 and 4, we see that the issue is considered. Who addressed the issue? Part of me wants to just have you raise your hand and, or shout it out. Um, verse 2, so the twelve gathered all the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. The leadership considered the question. Then they gave a solution. The solution was to appoint godly men to oversee this so that they could continue to minister in the word and prayer. Notice that they gave reason why they said this. Now, the congregation might have wanted the elders or the apostles to oversee the, the administration of the food. But the apostles said, no, that, that's not the best for the church. You guys pick seven men who are full of the Spirit and wisdom so that we can appoint them over this matter. And that brings me to the next question is, who carried out the action to resolve the issue? And here we see that the people chose the men. There's nothing in this passage that says that the apostles got involved with that. They may have, they may not have. But the people chose the men. Exactly how they did that? Did they vote like we vote? Did they draw straws? Said, here's ten men. The, the four guys that get the longest straws are, it, are the seven guys that get the longest straws are in? I, I don't know. But the congregation picked the men. It's important to note that they set the people, or the men, before the, con before the apostles. Um, verse 6. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, the prayer and the laying of the hands on them was the leaders approving of the people's choice. 
the more I thought about this next question, what were the results of the action, the more excited I've gotten. Verse 7, this is the result of church leadership leading and people following, being in submission. The word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Great things happened when God's design was followed. The, the part that really impacted me was a large number of the priests became obedient to the faith. I believe that the hardest people to get to understand the gospel, that it's not something I do that gets me up to God, but that God came down through Jesus Christ and became our, our sacrifice, our substitutionary atonement for our sin. Religious people are the hardest ones to get to understand that so that they can come to a point of faith in Jesus Christ. And the scripture says that the people, the priests who are religious, a great number of them became obedient to the faith. That's some great stuff. That is some great stuff. So we've looked at this, this instance here. There's another instance in Acts chapter 15. And to the best of my knowledge, these are the two narratives we have of church leadership coming together and deliberating on an issue um, and following through. I'm not going to read the whole chapter two reasons. My mouth is dry already. And it's a lengthy passage. And I think we can get the gist of it just by a, a sum summary of what's going on in chapter 15. Paul was up doing his missionary work and some men came from uh, Judea and were telling the Gentile believers that they had to be set, uh, circumcised and follow the laws of Moses to be saved. Paul got into a discussion with them, a debate. I think my version of the Bible said a dispute. After much disputing, it was decided Paul would go back to Jerusalem and go to the leadership, the church leadership. Um, so they did. The church leadership came together and had a discussion We'll look at that a little closer. And they determined that we should not, they should not lay on Gentile believers any greater, any burden of following the law, but that they abstain Let me find it. Oh, there it is. That they abstain from food strangled to, or sacrificed to idols, from blood, 
from meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. Those were the only things that, that the Jerusalem Council, as we know this council by, put on the Gentile believers. They did not have to um, be circumcised and follow all the laws of Moses. So they wrote a letter, sent Paul back with some other guys, um, and delivered the letter to the church, and the church had great joy um, and were strengthened and encouraged by a couple of the guys that went with Saul, and we'll look at that a little bit closer. But that's basically what's going on here. So in verses 1 through 5, we see who brought up the issue. Again, for simplicity, we can say it was part of the congregation. Um, I say that because a little later on, it talks about men going out from the Jerusalem church and saying these things, and the leaders say, we did not tell them to say that. And also, in verse 5, it says, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said. So these converted Pharisees also said the same thing. You've got to be circumcised and you've got to follow the law of Moses. So it was part of the congregation. And the issue was a teaching, a doctrine. These Judaizers were saying, this is what you have to do. They were teaching that. And Paul said, no, he was teaching salvation by grace and nothing else. So it was a doctrinal issue here, a false teaching that came up. Now, I would say that I believe these Judaizers had great intentions. Um, but what they were teaching was not accurate. So the issue is considered. Who addressed the issue? Verse 6 and 7, we see the introduction to that. We're in chapter 15 of Acts 8. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, and he goes on and he talks about how God called Peter to the Gentiles to deliver the gospel, and they received the Holy Spirit. Paul and Barnabas got up and talked about all the wonderful things God was doing with them amongst the Gentiles. And then James gets up. In just the last part of verse 13, he says, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has declared to us how God at first showed his, his concern, taking from among the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things that have been known for ages. So the, the apostles and the elders got together. Um, the New King James Version says 
after much disputing, they weren't agreeing. They were going back and forth. That tells me that it's okay in leadership to have discussions and not to see things eye to eye. Um, and we have had that in discussions in leadership in this church. Um, there's, there's been dispute. Sometimes it seems like, are we ever going to move on, make a decision and move on? Um, but all the discussion is good. Note, again, that the leaders gave reasoning for their solution. They, part of their reasoning was the experience that Peter had being called to the Gentiles. Part of their reasoning was the experience Paul and Barnabas had with seeing God do mighty things amongst the Gentiles. And part of their reason, the foundation of their reason, was Scripture. In the Old Testament, God predicted that there would be people from every tribe and tongue and nation in heaven. Not just Jewish people, not just Jewish proselytes, but Gentile believers. We dare not interpret Scripture by our experiences. We have to interpret our experiences through the lens of Scripture. And I think that's where people and congregations go astray as they, they start counting experience more heavily in their decision-making than the foundation of God's Word. Who carried out the action to resolve this issue? I haven't even been turning my pages. That's pretty good. <laughs> um, in verses 32, or 30 and 32, we see the results of the letter that they sent. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouragement. Um, they had joy for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. It seems like the New King James says they went to some other churches and encouraged and strengthened. So here we see good things. Joy in the church, strengthening, and encouragement. Again, when God's design was followed, leaders led and were allowed to lead, good things happened. Now we get to the, the three main points. Issues are real. You get a bunch of human beings together, living in community, and it's guaranteed that sooner or later, or probably sooner, there's going to be some friction. Would everybody agree with that? Issues are real. And God's Word 
shows us that the church, the early church, had some issues. Widows were being neglected. People who meant well, I believe meant well, were teaching error. So there were issues. And God's word doesn't sugarcoat it. That's, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but I think it's great that God's word does not sugarcoat people's lives. You, you do have Joseph and Daniel, which appear to be immaculate from my perspective. God didn't reveal their blemishes to us. But you, then you have a person like King David, who committed adultery and murder. And yet God said he was a man after his own heart. You have Peter in the New Testament. Impulsive Peter. He had some flaws, but God used him. That's encouraging to me to see the flaws of the patriarchs, the the, the great people in our faith. That is very encouraging. I think I got sidetracked there. Um, issues are real. That's my first point. They will happen. God has a pattern for church governance. We have looked at two accounts of the church addressing issues that will inevitably come up as people live in community. In both cases, the church leadership decided what should be done. The first instance, they got the congregation involved. They said, you choose seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and then they approved the choice of the people. The second instance, the church leadership made the decision and informed the church. The decision was, no, this teaching is wrong. We're going to put the kibosh on it. And use some vernacular term. Um, <clears throat> it's not right. Uh, the teaching that you had to be circumcised. But the people approved the decision. It pleased the whole church. If you read chapter 15 in Acts, the whole church rejoiced. And that was the Christian believers in Jerusalem who some were, I know, Jews, maybe a majority, um, they rejoiced at the decision. God hasn't left us without any idea of his pattern for church government. If you read through the book of Acts, every time it's talking about the church in a certain area, elders is always plural. It's not one elder, it's more than one elder. How many more? I don't know. Probably depending on the size of the church. Plurality of elders. Again, going back to I said, what I said about why this is on my mind is because it's my firm belief that until 
we become a pastor, elder, led, not ruled, led congregation, we will not flourish. That's my firm belief. But God's plan leads to flourishing. We saw in passage in, passage in 6 that the word of God went out. And I was thinking about that this morning. How much has the gospel word gone outside these walls in this church in three decades? We're not in the habit as members of this church of telling people the good news of Jesus Christ. I, I may be wrong. But I, I think there could be a lot more word spread outside these walls than is being spread outside these walls. People got saved. People came to faith in Jesus Christ. Even religious, stoutly religious priests turned to the faith and were saved. The church had joy. The church was encouraged. And the church was strengthened. God's pattern leads to flourishing. Last week, we had a baptism. Ben has just come to faith in Jesus Christ from what I understand in the last month, within the last month. It's exciting to see a new believer follow Jesus Christ in baptism so soon after his conversion. What if that took place on a monthly basis? Would that be exciting? It's possible it could take place on a weekly basis. That would be really exciting. I think with Ben and Dave's baptism in the last five years, I could count the number of baptisms on my hands. Maybe I'm wrong, but they're few and far between. Let's get excited about following what God's Word says and seeing him do great things in our church as we submit to people in leadership. You may say, Jeff, you're in leadership. You're the chairman of the deacon board. Of course you want to be in charge. I don't have to be in charge. I don't... I don't really like being in charge because when you're at the top, it's lonely. The reason for submitting to God's design is not because I say so. Heaven forbid. 
That's the wor- that would be the worst reason. That would be the worst reason. It's because God says so. How can we tie this in? Or how does the gospel help us to live in the tension that we are individuals and yet we're called to be submissive? Do you remember Peter's great sermon in, in Acts chapter 2? There was a lot of people that got saved that day. 5,000? That's a lot of people. A lot of souls come in, came into the kingdom. Towards the end of his sermon, in chapter 2, verse 6, 36, excuse me, Peter says, God has made... This Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Lord and Savior. The gospel speaks to this tension because we are called to submit to Jesus Christ. We are called as believers to a life of submission. But is that submission hard? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you realize that you deserved eternal separation from God. That's the punishment for sin. You also realized that God paid the price for your sin. And he is the only answer to man or woman or child's sin problem. And you put your faith in Christ. It's easy to do that because we see that Christ's love was so great for us that he willingly went to the cross. There's great theological debates. Did, Did Jesus have to go to the cross? Could he have denied it? It's really immaterial because Jesus loved you so much that he went to the cross to pay a debt that you could never pay on your behalf. So if we can see the love of Christ in that death for salvation, can we not see the love of Christ to watch over us, to be our good shepherd in submission to church leadership. And I, I thought this morning about Philippians 2, verses 5 through 13, chapter, uh, page 1827, if you're following along in the Pew Bible. 1827. I think it would be faster for me to look it up by reference. If you've been in church long, you're probably familiar with this passage. Starting in verse 5, Philippians 2. Your attitude should be the same as Christ, that of Christ Jesus, 
who being in the nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that Jesus, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who both work, who works in you both to will. I, I reverted to King James. Sorry, <laughs> to act according to His good pleasure, to will and to act according to His good pleasure. My point is that Jesus is our example, and His example was submission. Submission to the Father. He was obedient even unto death on a cross. That's how the gospel alleviates, well, it doesn't alleviate, but allows us to live with that tension of, I am an individual, and God acknowledges that, but I am also called to submit to church leadership. It allows us, if we think about Christ's love and his example, to live with that tension. So why should I submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ through the leaders of any given church? Going back to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, uh, using the King James vernacular, it says, to do anything other than submit is not profitable for me. It says, submit to leaders who rule over you so that they can have joy in their leading. If you don't submit, it's unprofitable to you. So that brings it right home to, wow, there's a benefit to me if I submit. And there is a benefit taken away if I don't submit. May God change our thinking about submission to authority from a bad thing, crimping my style, restricting my individuality. May He change that to a good thing, an umbrella of protection. Um, some of you got young kids. When your kids get old enough to drive and you tell them, be home by, it's for their protection. And if they're not home by then, that's when bad things can go on. Speaking of, of three raising three girls, um, yeah. <laughs> Just a little advice to all you young parents. When your car, kids turn 16, don't give them free access to a car. Don't get them their own car. It's a word of advice. <laughs> Um, but submitting to authority is an umbrella of protection. It is an avenue of blessing. We talked about the blessings to the church. 
when they submitted and allowed the leaders to lead. So I don't know where you are, you know, there are churches where church leadership went rogue, abused power, restricted people's individuality where Scripture didn't say they had authority to Scripture to restrict it. Maybe you come from that kind of a background, or maybe the authority in your home was overbearing. I ask you to think about how you've reacted to authority and submission to authority in the past. And think about what we looked at today and these two narratives of church leadership leading and the great things that came out of it. And as we progress towards um, moving from a... uh, pastor and then deacon and then committee structure to a pastor elder led congregation with deacons doing the serving serving i ask you to to strongly remember or strongly ask you to remember uh, these two passages and and hopefully the correct insights i believe they're correct insights that i brought out of them And I I would be remiss if I did not say if when I was talking about Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for your sins, if you haven't turned to Christ, if you haven't accepted him, his payment for your sins, if you're not in the kingdom of God, a part of the family of God, um, I ask you to consider that as the Spirit leads you. You can talk to myself. Pastor Josh, um, Quinn, I know, would be willing to to talk with you about how do you know for sure that you're in the kingdom and that you're on your way to heaven. Let's pray. Father, in some ways I feel that I have not adequately expounded on your word. But I pray, Lord, that the things that I have said would take root in our hearts. And if there is any error that I have spoken, that that would just be erased from our memories, that we would not dwell on that. I pray, Father, that you would give us a new spirit of accepting submission to authority because through the authority figures over us, you protect us. I ask, Father, that we indeed would be a church where the word of Jesus Christ and his salvation goes forth where people would be moved by your spirit to to have faith in Jesus Christ where baptisms would become commonplace where there would be much joy in the gospel I ask for this father in Jesus name
Amen.